in January. So, but tonight we do have the book of Nahum. As Father, we come and we take some time out in the middle of their week to be blessed and refreshed um, as we go through this Old Testament book, a book that uh, I think that many times is not even studied in a church. But this is part of the counsel of your word. Uh, and all scripture is profitable. So, Lord, as we look at this little book um, written 2,600 years ago, 2,700 years ago, and Lord, that it's for us today. And, Lord, as we look at the, the historical implications, there's a present application for us. And we want to just um, be open and, and uh, teachable and, and receiving your word in our hearts. And, Lord, so we give this time to study of your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I think that a lot of Christians, if you were asked them who Nahum is or that book of the Bible, they, they wouldn't be familiar with it at all. It's just a short little three chapters in the Old Testament, part of the Minor Prophets. And again, it's a book that probably very much is not taught in the church today. And the reason is, is because he is pronouncing judgment against Nineveh. And this prophet, his name means comforter, which is interesting because he is bringing a message of judgment. And how can he live up to his name? Well, uh, he's going to bring uh, this message that judgment is going to come against that which is evil and which is wicked. So God's going to bring judgment on Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrians, and it would comfort the enemies of Assyria, which would include God's people. We read in verse 1 of Nahum that the burden against Nineveh, the book of vision of Nahum, the Elkosite. So what do we know from the prophet is not a whole lot. It tells us that he's an Elkoshite, which suggests that he's from the town of Elkosh. Now, there's no uh, real conclusive evidence where this city was. Uh, many scholars believe that it was located in southern Judah, Others have suggested that it was east of the Jordan River in that area today, which is uh, the country of Iraq. Others have suggested that it was Capernaum in Galilee. Of course, Capernaum was the, the town of Jesus uh, there on the north shores of the Sea of Galilee, uh, where Jesus did most of his earthly ministry. So there's different suggestions where this place was, Elkosh, and Nahum comes from there. So he is coming to give a burden, which means a heavy message. We've seen that. We've seen that with Amos. We've seen that in some of the other books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the burden against in these different nations. And it means uh, a heavy judgment, which includes judgment. And he is bringing this heavy message against the city of Nineveh, as I've already mentioned to you, the capital of the Assyrians. And it is also believed that Nahum is writing this prophecy around 660 B.C. Now, that time frame is kind of right in between where uh, Judah, it, Judah was, you know, taken into captivity beginning in 605 B.C., but the ten northern tribes were taken off into captivity in 720 B.C. The ten northern tribes taken off uh, about uh, 40 years, 60 years before this message is written by the Assyrians. And we've talked about that quite ex extensively going through uh, the books of the prophets uh, as the Assyrians were very brutal. 
Now, we also know that it was 100 years before this time, before the 10 northern tribes were taken off into captivity, 100, 150 years before this, that it was Jonah. We just went through Jonah recently, that he went to the city of Nineveh, and he said, 40 days in judgment's going to come, and they repented. Well, a new generation has come on the scene, and they've gone back to their evil ways, and they have gone back to their brutal ways. They were ones that uh, would come in, and um, they were very brutal, skinning people alive, uh, torturing people. Whole villages would get up and move and, uh, or uh, you know, just leave uh, because they didn't want to go through the tortures of the Assyrians. When they came in and took the ten northern tribes off into captivity to put fish hooks in their mouths and drug them off into captivity, and then some of the Assyrians came and they dwelt there in that area of the ten northern tribes of Israel. And then as they uh, would uh, intermarry and, and have children with some of the Jews that were left there, they were called the Samaritans that we read about in the Gospels. But here he is bringing this message about 660 B.C. that The Assyrians are once again still very powerful at this time. And, and after this, they are going to certainly decline in power. Then Babylon's going to rise to power. And then they are going to take the house of Judah off into captivity. So as we look at this book, three chapters long, the certainty of God's judgment on Nineveh is in chapter 1. Chapter 2, the description of God's judgment on Nineveh is given. And in chapter 3, the reason for God's judgment on Nineveh. We continue reading in chapter 1 that God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversary. And he reserves wrath for his enemies. So what does it mean that, that God is, is jealous as we read that? Because some people read it in they think, well, you know, God, he's jealous. And they begin to think in terms of when we become jealous. When we become jealous of someone, it's usually in a sinful way. It's usually in a weird way. We're jealous of them. We want to uh, control them. We, we don't want them, to, you know, to, to like anything else or whatever it may be. It just ends up being kind of weird and sinful. But not with God. It's a righteous jealousy. And the scripture says that God is a jealous God. He is jealous not of, of those false gods. He, he would say, I'm a jealous God. Don't go after those, those idols. And it isn't that he's jealous of those idols. He's jealous for you. He doesn't want you to go in that direction that is going to cause you to be involved in false worship, going after false gods, because he knows that it's not going to help you, and it's only going to harm you. And so he's jealous for us because he wants the very best for us. He loves us. He desires for us to come to him and to know him, to walk with him. So he's not jealous of us. He's jealous for us. And it's like, you know, when we, uh, for example, a spouse that we have that we're married to, uh, how would we want our spouse to give their affection to someone else? We don't. We're jealous for them. And it's a righteous jealousy. So the Lord says that he's going to take vengeance on his adversaries, which would be Nineveh. Man needs to understand that we can't fight against God and hope to prevail. And those who set themselves against God are going to receive his vengeance and his wrath. The only ones that aren't are those who have come to Christ, surrendered their lives to him, knowing that Jesus took the wrath and the judgment that you and I deserve on the cross of Calvary. So he will judge sin. He will judge uh, those who come against him. And we continue reading in verse uh, 3. 
that the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and he will not acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. So the wicked will not be acquitted, except for those who have come to Jesus Christ. He's our defense attorney. He's our advocate. And he's a just God. He's all-powerful, but he's slow to anger, and he is patient. And you might remember that Jonah, when he went to Nineveh, and he walked across the city, and he said, judgment coming in 40 days, the, the king and all the people repented. And Jonah was upset. He, he didn't like the Assyrians. He didn't want uh, salvation to come to them. He didn't want them to repent. He wanted God to judge them. And Jonah, when he was outside the city and he's pouting, he's all mad, he said, I know that you would do this, Lord, because you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and, uh, and abundant in loving kindness. But in his righteous anger, he's going to now bring judgment because they've turned back to their wicked ways. And then we see Nahum speaks of this huge whirlwind and storm, which is nothing to God. He has his way with them. And in verse 4, we read, he rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. And the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. So uh, the greatness of God's power is described here. He is the Lord over all. All the earth trembles at his presence. And when Jesus comes back, he will come back to judge the nations. And all the earth are going to see his great glory and his great power. So this is familiar um, pro, you know, uh, prophecies given concerning when he comes back, the greatness of the Lord, how the earth is going to heave at his presence um, as we read that. Uh, it's going to be the world and all who dwell in it as he comes in great power and glory. And then in verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down. Uh, the rocks are thrown down by him. So Hebrews chapter 10 verse 31 says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. We, we, we cannot stand before an awesome, all-powerful, holy God. It's like a consuming fire, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us. Remember Moses, he, he said to the Lord up there on that mountain, he said, Lord, I want to see your glory. And the Lord said, Moses, you can't see my glory. It will consume you. And so Moses hid in the cliff of the rocks, and, and he said, I'll pass by, and you can see my afterglow, is what the Lord said. And the only way that we can stand before this awesome God is through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And to keep in mind that Jesus came to declare the Father to us, and we know that John, he would write, that John bore witness of him, and all his fullness have received, and grace for grace, and he is the one. And no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So Jesus declares the Father, but he is all-powerful, all you know, uh, glorious, and we can't stand before this awesome, all-powerful, all-glorious God uh, in our own righteousness. It's only through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And in, in verse 7, the Lord is good, the stronghold in a day of trouble, and he knows those who trust him. Uh, remember in this judgment that it's, again, a righteous judgment and God is good. People say, how can he judge the world? Uh, how can he judge people? He's a righteous, holy, you know, God. He's a just God. 
and he's the only one that can, you know, uh, render judgment in a perfectly just, perfectly in his righteousness, and sin and wickedness will be dealt with. And the only way that we could have sin dealt with was through his son, Jesus Christ. His love given to us, his provision on that cross. And those who reject him, their sin will be judged. So the question isn't, you know, how can God judge somebody? It's like, why would you reject that which has been provided for you? Because it is a holy God that has declared that he will judge sin. And judgment will come to sin and those who have rejected Jesus Christ. But with an overflowing flood, he makes an utter end to his place. And darkness will pursue his enemies. What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. So Jonah took three days to walk through the city. And it was believed that the city was about 10 miles wide, 30 miles long. Uh, they also believed that perhaps as many as five walls surrounded the city to really keep it fortified. It was an amazing ancient city. And God's judgment is going to be like a flood as we read here. And it happened in part literally. The final siege on Nineveh by the Medes and the Babylonians, heavy uh, you know, uh, rains caused part of the walls to collapse. But the destruction of Nineveh was so complete that it was centuries uh, that passed by that it was believed that perhaps it really wasn't a really real city until about the 19th century finally the ruins were found, but the destruction was complete, just as it's described here, for while tangled like thorns uh, and while drunken like drunkards, verse 10, they shall be devoured, stubble fully dried. From you comes forth one who plots evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Kind of interesting. They would be devoured, and the wicked counselor may be a reference to Shennacherib who comes against Judah. Now, Shennacherib, uh, that he had uh, come against Judah, he came against Jerusalem, and of course, Hezekiah, and he is the one that, of course, uh, we know that, um, that he uh, ended up uh, being killed in, his, in Nineveh when he went back after 185,000 Assyrian soldiers were killed by an angel in one night. And then we read in verse 12 that, Thus says the Lord, though they are safe, and likewise many, yet in this manner they will be cut down when he passes through. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. For now I will break off the yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. So again, maybe a reference to the Assyrians, threat against Jerusalem. But in our lives, God has broken the yoke of sin, hasn't he? And the bondage, and we take on his yoke. Remember Jesus said on that hillside in Galilee that come to me all of you who are weary and heavy laden and come learn of me. Take my yoke upon you and my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So we are to yoke ourselves with the Lord as he gives that invitation to you and to me. In verse 14, the Lord has given command and concerning you, your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Out of the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved images and the molden image. I will dig your grave for you are vile. Interesting, harsh words that are given. I'm going to destroy your idols and this great city would lose their name in his judgment against them. You're no longer, your name's going to be perpetuated no longer. And, and we know that there's no more Assyrians, are there? 
There's no Nineveh. Um, it's no longer existed and was completely destroyed just as it was prophesied. And, and their name no longer is going to um, be perpetuated. No longer is going to be mentioned. And behold, on the mountains of the feet of him who brings good tidings, verse 15. Does that bring from... Uh, uh, recognize, you know, that verse of Isaiah, that Isaiah said the same thing. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace. O Judah, keep your appointed feast, perform your vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. So those who bring comfort to God's people, the feet of who bring good news and proclaim, you know, God's peace to people, that's what we're to do. Never forget that we are a part of that. And sometimes, as Christians, we know that judgment is a part of the gospel message. In other words, we've all sinned, and we all deserve judgment, God's judgment. But the good news, and that's what the word gospel means, good news is this, is that Jesus Christ took the judgment for you and for me. And as we do, we can bring peace to people, because peace is only found through Jesus Christ. And don't forget to do that. And how beautiful and how wonderful um, the feet who brings good news, who proclaims peace. And we are to do that. It was good news to the people of Judah that Nineveh was destroyed. Yet we are to bring good news of the gospel that Jesus has conquered sin. And that's what we want to do. I hope we do that this Christmas season. There's a reason why Jesus came. Born in Bethlehem. It's a great salvation story uh, that, that we have and we get to proclaim during the year that Jesus Christ came to save his people from their sin. And now chapter 2 is we see about the description of God's judgment, the destruction of Nineveh. He who scatters has come up before your face. Man the fort, watch the road, strengthen your flanks, fortify your power mightily. For the Lord will restore the excellence of Jacob like the excellence of Israel, for the emptiers will have emptied them out and ruined their vine branches. Uh, a battle, uh, sound the alarm, a call to battle, that is. A mighty army will come against Nineveh, restore the excellence of Judah, remember, and the restoration of Israel in the future, and includes the Lord bringing judgment and destruction on our enemies. So here, that is spoken of here. The Lord will restore the excellence of Jacob like the excellence of Israel. And it is a future reference to the millennium reign, the future restoration of Israel. In verse 3, the shields of his mighty men are made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. The chariots come with flaming torches in the day of his preparation. And the spears are, are brandished. The chariots rage in the streets. They jostle one another in the broad roads. They seem like torches. They run like lightning. He remembers, remembers, that is, his nobles. They stumble in their walk and make haste to her walls. And the defense is prepared. The gates of the rivers are open and the palace is dissolved. Verse 7 tells us it is decreed. She shall be led away captive. She shall be brought up and her maidservants shall lead her with the voice of doves beating their breasts. So utter confusion happens as the enemy breaks through the wall of the city. If we let the enemy break through, it happens because we're not putting on the whole armor of God. And we are told in the spiritual warfare that we go through life, the enemy is constantly coming against us, throwing the, the, the fiery darts at us. And we are told in Ephesians chapter 6 that we're to put on the whole armor of God. 
And it's important that we do that in our lives so we can withstand the, the wiles of the enemy, the schemes of the enemy that come against us because it is a, a battle out there. And it seems like the battle is intensifying all the time uh, as the enemy comes against us. Though Nineveh, verse 8 of old, was like a pool of water, now they flee away. Halt, halt, they cry, but no one turns back. Take spoil of silver, take spoil of gold. There is no end of treasure or wealth of every desirable prize. She is empty, desolate, and waste. The heart melts and the knees shake. Much pain is on every side, and all their faces are drained of color. We know that the city was believed to be not only surrounded with walls and up to as many as five walls, but also surrounded by uh, canals of water. Uh, it was their water source, their water supply that would be in between the walls. And the enemy came, the troops of Nineveh, are, are like pools of water that drains away to no use. They flee uh, and they are useless. And they would lose their wealth, verse 9 goes on to say. And all their wealth, as verse 10 tells us, is destroyed, taken away. They're in shock. They thought it would never happen. So a couple things that we have seen, that God in pronouncing judgment against whether it was Israel or Judah or the neighboring nations, Nineveh here or Egypt, he would always speak about, first of all, their pride. Their pride that we're secure, we're strong, we're wealthy, we're doing well. But then how they would be shocked that they lost their wealth. They didn't think that this would happen. Even God's people, they thought, well, this is Jerusalem. This is God's temple. Nothing will happen to us. And we need to make sure that we don't put our confidence in things and in wealth and in our own you know, um, abilities and things like that, that uh, we can't lose that. We, you know, nothing will happen to us. Uh, we need to put our confidence in the Lord. So the question for all of us is, where is our treasure? Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. And our treasure, I pray for all of us, is desiring to just draw closer to the Lord, to know the Lord. That's our confidence. It's in Him, not in ourselves, what we have. It's a blessing what we have. And, of course, we work to secure those things. But, you know, things can change. We can lose things so easily. We can lose wealth. We can lose our health. We can lose our jobs, our businesses, whatever. And, and some have experienced that during this pandemic. So our confidence always needs to be in the Lord, and our treasure needs to be in the Lord. Where our treasure is, that's where our heart is going to be. It's going to follow. And then in verse 11 of the chapter, where's the dwelling of the lions? In the feeding place of the young lions. Where the lion walked, the lioness, the lion cub, and no one made them afraid. The lion tore in pieces enough for his cubs, killed for the lioness, filled his uh, caves with prey and his dens with flesh. So speaking again, uh, one of the national symbols of Assyria was believed to be a lion. They crushed and plundered the other nations like a lion destroying its prey. But now, where are the dwelling of the prey as this judgment comes? And as we finish chapter 2, Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and then the sword shall devour your young lions. And I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall be heard no more. So what a terrible thing. To be said of your God, as, as I read this, it really struck me. I am against you, but here's the good news. 
that the Bible says for you and I in Christ that God is for us. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? God is for us. We have the spirit of adoption. We don't have to have the spirit of fear. We can cry out, Abba, Father. And I love that chapter in Romans chapter 8. It's such a glorious chapter. Who, who can separate us from the love of God in that section there as we read about it? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all? How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And who shall bring a charge against God's elect? I love this that Paul writes here is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Isn't that good news? The Lord makes intercession for us. Earlier in the chapter, chapter 8, that we are told that the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us when we don't know how to pray. And who is he who is condemned? Is it Christ who died and furthermore is also risen? who is at the right hand of God. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And we go on, and yet all through these things, that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then he goes on to say, there's nothing that will separate us from the love of God. God is for us. Who can be against us? I love that. And may we always be established in the love of Jesus Christ, and, and, and to know that he is for us and, and that we belong to him. And uh, we can be established in that, uh, whatever it is that we're going through. And now chapter 3, the reason for God's judgment on Nineveh. We read that, woe to the bloody city that is full of lies and robbery. Its victims never depart. The noise of a whip and the noise of rattling wheels, of galloping horses, of clattering chariots, horsemen charged with bright sword and glittering spear. There is a multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over the corpse because the multitude of harlotries in a seductive, seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nation through her harlotries and families through her sorceries. So they were very violent people, as we've already discussed, a brutal people. And what they did to others would be done to them. In verse 5, Behold, I'm against you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nation your nakedness. Very graphic, isn't it? I'll lift your skirts over your face. Your nakedness is going to be exposed in the kingdoms of your shame. I will cast abominable filth upon you, make you vile, is what we read, and make you a spectacle. It shall come to pass that all will look upon you, will flee from you, and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? So very graphic here. Uh, Once this powerful, very strong nation is going to be put to shame, and the other nations, the other people are going to be amazed and shocked how the mighty have fallen here, how they've been exposed. There'll be no comforters for Nineveh uh, that will come to them. And then in verse 8, you are better than no Ammon that was situated by the river that had the waters around her whose rampart was the sea, whose wall was the sea. Uh, Ethiopia, Egypt were her strength and it was boundless. Put in uh, Lebam were your helpers, yet she was carried away. She went into captivity. Her young children also were dashed to pieces in the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable men and all her great men were bound 
in chains. So Ammon, it was a city of upper Egypt, was captured by the Assyrians in about this time here, a few years before this prophecy given. And they too saw themselves as strong and secure and safe. No one could destroy them, but they were wrong, uh, just as the people in Nineveh were wrong. And we are wrong if we think that we are strong in our own strength. If we don't, you know, we are strong and nothing's going to happen to us and nothing's going to happen to me and I'm just going to go through life because I can handle it. I'm strong. I'm tough. Uh, I'll, you know, chew glass and, and eat glass and spit nails and all of this. Uh, our confidence is always in the Lord and only in the Lord and we, it needs to stay there. And you also will be drunk, verse 11, as we read, and will be hidden. You also will seek refuge from the enemy. And your strongholds are fig trees with ripened figs, and they are shaken. They fall to the mouth of the eater. So Assyria will fall quickly as ripe figs uh, that fall from a tree. We saw this uh, in the book of Isaiah in a proclamation against uh, Damascus, uh, that fig trees like a shaken and very few figs because of the judgment that are coming. And again, to always keep in mind that our strength is in the Lord. He's the one that makes us strong. He's our provision. He's everything that we need. And surely your people in your midst are women. The gates of your land are wide open for your enemies. Fire shall devour the bars of your gates. Draw your water from the siege. Fortify your strongholds. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Make strong the brick uh, kiln. Uh, therefore, there the fire will devour you. The sword will cut you off, and I will eat you up like a locust. So Nahum is, in a way, he begins to, to um, be very sarcastic. He says, your people in your midst are women. He's, he's like, the men are going to lose their courage. And he's, he's almost like, you're like a bunch of women. He's being derogatory here. In other words, you're weak and you're defenseless. You can try to fortify the city, have provision, but it's going to be to no prevail. And then in verse 16, you have multiplied your merchants more than the stars of heaven. The locust plunders and flies away. Your commanders are like swarming locusts, and your generals like great grasshoppers, which camp in the hedges on the cold day. When the sun rises, they flee away in a place where they are not known. So uh, the, the cool of the day, the locusts settle on the walls, but as soon as the warmth of the sun comes out, they begin to flee away. It would be that way with Nineveh. And as long as things were good and cool, they boasted, they slumbered, they you know, thought everything was okay. But now they're going to flee away because the heat of the day is coming. And what can happen with us as we make application for us is that you know, when the heat comes in our own lives, don't fly away from the Lord. We need to stay and stay close to the Lord and look to Him and... And we need to trust in him and rest in his love. But don't flee away when the heat of circumstances come. And then as we finish the book here of Nahum, this little book here, your shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. Your nobles rest in the dust. Your people are scattered on the mountains, and no one gathers them. Your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe, and all who hear news of you will clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not your wickedness passed Continually, So no one mourned for Assyria, no hope uh, for them, but our hope is in Jesus Christ. So a short little book as we just went through it, but one of the things that I think that reminds me of is that our confidence is in the Lord 
and that we need to trust in him. Our strength comes from the Lord. It's not confidence in ourselves or trying to be strong in our own you know, energies and efforts. It is in the Lord and that he is the one that has conquered sin. And he is the one that we can have confidence in and that we can have confidence in his love. So I pray that we're established in that. And I'm so grateful that Jesus took the judgment for our sins upon that cross and to bring that good news of, of uh, you know, the feet of him who brings good news, uh, a message of peace to others. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you that in this season that we can do that. Even as uh, it was the angels that said, I bring you good tidings of great news that will be to all people. In this city of David, as Savior Christ, the Lord is born. And, Lord, I pray that you bless everyone here. We look forward to just celebrating the birth of Jesus, being with family and friends, and that we would proclaim that gospel of peace to others, that Jesus Christ came, born of Bethlehem, for a reason. And that our confidence would always be in you, Lord, not in ourselves, not in our own abilities, not in what we have. Uh, but, Lord, we have you. And, uh, Lord, there's nothing that will separate our, us from your love. And I thank you that you proved your love on the cross. You love us now and that you're going to continue to show your love to us this Christmas season as we enter into a, a new year. So bless everyone here. Looking forward to Sunday when we gather once again. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Hope to see you on Sunday.